We're going to look this morning at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 to 25. Hebrews 13, 18 to 25. And, and I'm only going to preach this morning on verses 20 and 21. Um, I think that will benefit us the most. And so, as usual, you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open, reading along there with me. And before we do, let's pray and let's call on the Lord to be present with us and to bless the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would um, send out your word with great power. You have said as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, making it bring forth in bud, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall your word be coming out of your, your mouth. It will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purposes for which you sent it. And our God, you have sent your word Lord's Day after Lord's Day to us, and you are accomplishing your purposes. And so we pray that you would soften hearts that you would quicken minds, that you would make us to see your son in a magnificent way, that you would draw us close to him, that, Lord Jesus, we would see you and hear you as the great shepherd of the sheep, that we would hear your voice and follow you all the way into glory. We pray that you would help us as we hear your word read and preached. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 18. And as he now brings this letter to a close, the writer says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send greetings. Grace be With you all, the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Well, we have spent 10 months and 34 sermons looking at the book of Hebrews. And then the writer says at the very end, bear with this brief word of exhortation. And you're like, what? This is not brief. You just spent 10 months and 34 sermons. We had to listen to you for 10 months preach through what he calls a brief word of exhortation. And we've seen over and over and over again that everything the writer says in this book is intimately related to the fact that the Hebrew Christians were suffering, that they were being persecuted, they had had their goods taken, their houses taken, their lands taken, and they were in danger of turning away from Jesus because when men hate Jesus, they turn all of their focus onto his servants. And when the servants feel the pressure from men that hate Jesus... They are tempted to turn away for ease and for peace. And so everything the writer has told them again and again and again is stay close to Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look unto Jesus. Continue running the race with your eyes fixed steadfastly on Jesus Christ. And he has brought the gospel over and over and over again. And he's brought warnings And he's told them, don't fall away, don't turn away. If you turn away from Jesus, it's impossible to be renewed again to repentance. If you turn away from Jesus, you trample the only thing that can save your soul and sanctify you and free you from guilt, sins, guilt and power in your conscience. And you might expect, you might expect his final word 
because it's a very severe message, the very real danger of turning away from Jesus, those who have professed faith in him but never really knew him. There's a, there's a very real danger, and you might expect his last word to be stern or severe or challenging or a warning or a threat. You might expect that. I think that's how most people seeing dangers would, would wrap something up. Listen to me very carefully. Don't do that. Something very severe, something very stern. And yet his final word is almost the most gloriously gracious and theologically rich word he has spoken in this epistle. It's what we call the benediction, bene dictum, the good word, the good word, the benediction that he pronounces on a church that's in danger of turning away. And there in verse 20 and 21, this is what he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight. Now we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to consider what he has to say about the peace of God when he talks about the God of peace. Secondly, we're going to see what he says about the perfection of the finished work of Christ. And finally, we're going to see what he says about the perfecting of believers. Now notice there in verse 20 that he brings out this glorious title for God. He says, now may the God of peace, now may the God of peace. Now it's interesting because uh, the last chapter, just before this, he called him the judge of all the earth and a consuming fire. So if you read chapter 12, God is called the judge of all the earth and a consuming fire. And here in chapter 13, he's called a God of peace. And we're meant to take those things and to say, now, why on the one hand is this picture of God in his holiness and righteousness and majesty and justice and the future punishment of all those who don't know Jesus Christ and don't have their sins forgiven? Why is he painted in such a terrible picture? Why is he painted in such uh, a terrifying terms as the judge of all the earth and a consuming fire. And then here, he's said to be the God of peace. I think the answer is simple. There's a cross. There's a cross. There's a cross that enables the judge of all the earth to be to you and to me, the God of peace. And it's interesting that he doesn't say the God of all grace. You might think, having said that everything's by grace and everything that Jesus has done is by grace, and if you're in Jesus, it's by grace, and you didn't deserve it, and God never, ever, ever should have brought you out of a pit and and united you to his son and forgiven your sins, and it's all of grace, and bear with the word of grace, and don't move away from the word of grace. And you might expect the writer of Hebrews to say, now may the God of grace, but he says, now may the God of peace. And so we have to ask the question, Not only is he not called the judge of all the earth here because the judgment has been rendered in the death of Jesus. We have been judged in Jesus at the cross. And not only is he not called the God of grace here, he's called the God of peace. And the question is, why is he called the God of peace? And I think very simply, the answer is because those to whom he's writing are in danger of turning away because they want peace in their lives. They don't want persecution. They don't want opposition. They don't want hardship. They want peace with other men. But what he's saying to them is even more than that, you need peace with God and praise God, glory of glories. God is a God of peace. Now, God is not a God who decides one day I'm going to, I'm going to be a God of peace. You know what? I decide I will be a God of peace. Now I've been a God of war. I've been a God of judgment. Now I'm going to be a God of peace. Always a righteous God, always a holy God. The God of all the earth 
is absolutely, perfectly holy in every aspect of his infinite glory and beauty, and that God is absolutely, perfectly at peace within himself. Perfectly at peace. He is peace, and he makes peace for us. I want to read to you a quote, wonderful quote, William Still, who I've referenced throughout this series. This will be the last quote I give you, and maybe the best. He says, God is the God of peace. He is at peace in and with himself. A fundamental implication of the Holy Scriptures is that the triune God was, is, and ever shall be in perfect accord with himself, person with person, the Father and the Son, mutually delighting in each other and in each other's perfections, in the perfections of the Holy Spirit. And he says, person to person, ever perfectly accord and and perfectly harmonious within himself, office with office. And he is satisfied with himself in the fullness and perfection of his wisdom, love, and power. When infinite intelligence finds infinite perfection in itself, infinite stability and integrity of character are assured. Now, if you want me to break that down and give you the tweet, God is a God of peace in all of his infinite perfection. God wants you to know the very peace that he knows within his own Godhead. God wants you to know the overflowing peace that he is going to give you in Jesus Christ. I don't mean peace that you can sleep at night necessarily. I don't mean peace that I don't have to worry about this situation or that situation. I mean peace in your consciences from the gnawing of a guilty conscience, a conscience that is guilty from sin and corruption and a conscience that by nature is at enmity with God, at hostility with God. And God wants you to have a a conscience and a soul that is reconciled to him. And so what did he do? He commanded his son with whom he lived in eternal peace. He said, my son, I want you to lay down your life for those that don't deserve it. I command you to lay down your life and to take it again. I am going to make peace through the blood of your cross, my son. And the son said, yes, father, I will lay down my life for my people. I will make peace through the blood of my cross. I will satisfy your wrath. I will atone for their sins. I will pay the debt that only I can pay because I am infinite and I am full of the perfections that you love, my father, and I want to please you and I always do what's pleasing to you. I will redeem them. And so you see the connection. Notice the connection. Chapter 20, the God of peace. What did he do? Brought again from the dead, the Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. What did the God of peace do to show that he is the God of peace and to give you the peace of God? He sent his son to bear the wrath, to bear the curse, to atone for sins, to be the final sacrifice that ends all the sacrifices that the bulls and the goats and all the oxen in the Old Testament pointed forward to. And Jesus said, I, as the eternal God, will become the sacrifice and I will make my soul a sacrifice for sin, and I will make peace for my people. And then God the Father affirms that he is the God of peace because he accepted that sacrifice and raised his son through his shed blood on the cross. Now, when we think about our deep needs, I think if we we categorized our needs, if we were honest with ourselves, you're probably going to put finances, no matter how much you make or how much you don't make. My guess is that's going to be at the top. 
and maybe health is somewhere up there, maybe um, a peaceful marriage, all these other things you might categorize. What the writer of Hebrews would have you do at the end of this letter is say, more than all the financial concerns I may have, more than all the health needs I may have, more than the marital needs I have, more than the relational needs I have, more than the social needs I have, I need to be at peace with God. I've told you this. My favorite quote in church history is not an overstatement. I am a man given overstatements. I know that. This is not an overstatement. My favorite quote in church history comes from John Bunyan. And you know, Bunyan was a, one of the greatest theologians in church history and um, was a man that struggled deeply in his conscience for peace, struggled deeply to believe the gospel, to know that God had accepted him and forgiven him. And um, there's a great quote where Bunyan is talking about um, how God was at work in his soul. And this is what he said. I remember that one day I was musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart and considering the enmity that was in me to God. That scripture came into my mind. He has made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see both again and again that God and my soul were friends by his blood. God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yes, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through this blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to you is you need the knowledge of the perfect work of Jesus so pressed into your mind and heart and the word he has made peace through the blood of his cross to so come into your soul in a way as you've never felt it that you can say the infinitely holy God and my sinful soul are friends and can embrace and kiss each other. He loves me. He sent his son to die for me. He sent his son to cleanse my consciences from dead works. He, he sanctified me through his offering of himself on the cross. He has justified me through what he did, and he's going to perfect me through what he did. And the greatest blessing, let me say this this morning, the greatest blessing anybody could ever enjoy in life is peace with God. Um, I know you looked at that Jonathan Edwards sermon this morning. We didn't plan this. I love how God does those things. And, and Jesus, as he goes away, um, it's one of my favorite Edward sermons. As he's going away, he tells the disciples there in the upper room, um, peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. And he's going to establish that through going to the cross. And Edward says, and there's this great quote, maybe you heard it this morning, he says, he didn't have houses or lands to give them. He didn't have an inheritance to leave them, but he had peace. He had overflowing, infinite peace that he gave them through his atoning death on the cross. And the writer of Hebrews brings, in a sense, every part of everything he has said in this letter into this benediction. He says, the God of peace has made peace by sending his son, and we are assured that he has given us peace because he's raised him from the dead. And so secondly, we want to consider the perfection of the finished work of Christ. Now notice that God is called the God of peace. Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep. Interesting how choice his names were here as he brings us to a close. God is now the God of peace. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, one of the points in this book was to show us that there were great men and great women throughout redemptive history. Abraham was great. Moses was great. Joshua was great. 
Aaron was great. Melchizedek was great. Sarah was great. David was great. Abel was great. Noah was great. The whole litany, the whole host, they were great. The angels are great. Jesus is greater. That's the point of the book. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Don't move away from Jesus. And so when he comes to finally press this in, he says, God, who is the God of peace, raised from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, John Piper said this uh, recently, and I I was taken back with the way he said this. Um, Piper said, God designed human souls to need a shepherd. God designed human souls to need a shepherd. Lostness is rebellion against that. Salvation is coming home to that, to the shepherd of souls. That's what Peter says, that you've, you were going astray like lost sheep, but you've returned to the captain, the shepherd, and the overseer of your souls. Your souls were designed to need a shepherd. Your souls and my soul were designed to need an almighty God to care for them. And lostness is saying, I will do it myself. I don't need God. I will take care of myself. And God says, oh, no, I designed you. I designed your soul. I crafted you specifically to need a shepherd, to be cared for. And I and I alone can do it. And so I will become the shepherd. And he's not just like any shepherd. He's not just the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He knows exactly what you need. He knows how to call you by name. He goes out after you. If you stray, he comes out and brings you back. He keeps you from straying. He tends you and protects you. He does everything for you in his time. He provides for you. He knows how to deal with you perfectly and intimately, just the way you are in your personality and in your lives. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and I call them and they follow me. And if you're a believer, you know exactly what I'm talking about in your soul. You know exactly what it is to have a great shepherd. That was for me one of the most astonishing things when I was converted. I'd been in the world in such darkness. And when God came out after me, And Jesus Christ interposed his blood for me. I remember marveling over that verse. You you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, here's the question. And I'm going to say what I said the last sermon. If your soul was designed to need a shepherd, if your soul was designed to need a shepherd, and Jesus is such a shepherd that knows exactly what you need, why in the world would you turn away from him? Why in the world would you not run to him and stay as close to him as possible and to know all your weakness and all your frailties and to know, to know that in and of yourselves, we don't have the resources and that we like to go astray. We like to do wrong things. We like to go back to the world. We like to do things that are displeasing to God, even as believers. That's our, that is the old nature within us, the proclivity we have to going back to the world. And, and here's what God's done to protect you and keep you. The great shepherd of the sheep became the lamb of God so that the lambs of God have the great shepherd over them. The shepherd became the lamb and was slaughtered and was crucified and was wounded and was pierced for your transgressions The shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He became the lamb that was slain. And now the lamb, according to John and Revelation, leads his people everlastingly 
beside still waters. He restores their soul. He lays them down in green pastures. He does everything for them. He protects them when they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. His work on the cross was so perfect that it's not anything you have to do to make him the shepherd you need. He is the shepherd you need because of what he did. He is the, the perfect shepherd, the great shepherd. Now notice this. How do I know? How do I know that all of this is true? How do I know that what Jesus did at the cross really does something for me now in, in 2013? I'm, I forgot what year we are. 2013. They're going so quick. Um, how do I know that in 2013 what Jesus did on the cross impacts me and affects me? Notice what the writer says. He says, the God of peace raised Again from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, how do I know that his work was perfect? How do I know that everything I need is bound up in the crucified Lord Jesus Christ? Because God raised him from the dead. And the writer says the perfection of Jesus's work is seen in that God raised him from the dead through the blood. What does that mean? What does that even mean? It means that God the Father saw the sacrifice of his son he saw the blood shedding of Jesus. His wrath was, was satisfied and was propitiated. It was turned away. And God the Father saw the blood and he said, I am satisfied. My justice has been upheld. My righteous wrath has been extinguished for my people, for those for whom Christ died. And that sacrifice is so perfect and that blood is so powerful and so efficacious and so eternally impacting that God raised Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of Jesus proves that the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. Otherwise, he would have died like everybody else and you would still be in your sins. And that's Paul's big argument, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ is not risen, then you're still in your sins. My, what I'm doing is stupid. I should leave here. This is ridiculous. I am monologuing with a bunch of people, some of whom may not even like hearing these things. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, your preaching is in vain. You're still in your sins. Everything you do is in vain. But God, the God of peace, raised his son from the dead and proved that the blood was sufficient, the sacrifice was finished. Listen, this is the marvel. This is the marvel of Jesus' second to last word. It is finished. Paid in full. That what Jesus did was he paid our debt perfectly. He paid our debt perfectly. That means if you fall into sin this week, and all of you are going to sin this week, let's say you fall into some sin that... that um, if you don't sin this week, we, or you don't think you did, we should talk. Um, we'll go through the Westminster Larger Catechism together. Um, and I'll read you the Ten Commandments a couple times. Um, and uh, if you do fall into a sin this week, and that sin scars your conscience, and the, the wounding of that sin on your conscience, which there, there, there is guilt for sin, what you need to do is remember who the great shepherd of the sheep is, what he did, how God the Father received his sacrifice and raised him through the blood, and what that will be, that will be a magnet to you to draw you back to him, to know that what God always wants for you is peace. 
He, he always wants you close to the shepherd. He wants you to know that his work is sufficient and perfect and that you can't add to it at all. And, and even your best efforts at sanctification and desiring to live a godly life, which you need to do, that they add nothing to that. God the Father, let me say this, God the Father did not raise Jesus from the dead because you gave a certain amount of money to some cause. God the Father did not raise Jesus from the dead because you prayed for five minutes this week. Shame on us if we didn't pray more than that. God the Father didn't raise Jesus from the dead because you've tried to be a good person and just do good things. God the Father didn't raise Jesus from the dead because of anything you did. He killed his son because of what you did. And he raised him from the dead because the blood was sufficient. And that's the guarantee that when he stepped out of the tomb, God the Father was saying to you, my son and my daughter, I have made peace for you. My peace is now your peace. Your sins are forgiven. You're accepted in my son. You are a son and a daughter now. You are redeemed and clothed and covered, and you've been brought home to God. And that's what the resurrection proves, that the finished work of Jesus was perfect in the sight of his father. Now notice where he moves from there as in our third point, uh, the perfecting of the saints. And lest you think me telling you you're going to sin this week is a license to go out and just do whatever, notice that he moves from justification, in a sense, to sanctification. And what he says is, may the God, it's a prayer, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. So what God wants for us is for us to want to do his will, as he's revealed in the scriptures. He wants you to want to do his will, just like Jesus said, not my will, your will be done. That's what, as a creature, that's what God requires of us. I want you to do my will. But notice, in, in speaking about perfecting the saints, the writer doesn't say anything about what you're to do right here. He doesn't call you to do anything. I'm not going to give you any points to do anything. He says, may the God of peace equip you. For every good work, to do his will, working in you, what is well-pleasing in his sight. That means as we grow, as we press on to live a life of faith that's pleasing to God, as we press on to obey him and to put sin to death and to walk obediently, any, any victories that we have are God equipping us through the finished work of Jesus, working in us what is pleasing in his sight. And that means at the end of the day, not just our justification, not just how we're accepted, but even our sanctification is a gift of God. It's a grace of God. And on judgment day, I never, ever, ever get to say, I did it, ever. I will never get to say, I did it. I will get to say, the God of peace did everything from start to finish he equips us for every good work. And here's the comforting thought in this. The great question that the Hebrews are facing is, will they endure to the end? Will you endure to the end? Will you end up in glory? And the answer is, if you are in the great shepherd of the sheep by faith, if he's your shepherd, if you're united to him by faith, you will most certainly endure to the end because he will equip you for every good work he will work in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. He will confirm you to the end. He will complete what he began in you. What Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he will keep what I have committed to him against that day. And he who began a good work in you will complete it. And that means even when I have those moments of fear, 
and dread and when I look at my life and my failures and all of the needs that I have and I'm yes pressing forward onto glory behind any any perseverance in faith and grace is God working in me working in me and here's the marvelous thing I think 90 some percent of the time you don't even know he's working in you I was thinking about this this week that oftentimes he's equipping you and working in you and you don't even recognize it and it's as we go on in life and we see the victories and we feel more the emptiness of the world and our desires to be well-pleasing to God, the more we're feeling that in our souls, the more we're recognizing the God who we can't see is working in us by his spirit through his son. And notice he gets glory. Notice the last part of verse 21. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, I want to just give you a couple applications as we close. Very few people in this world keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. Very few people keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. For 10 months, we have been called to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Every day of your life, you need to remind yourself of who he is, of his greatness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his power, of his sufficient sacrifice, of his life that he now lives forever as your high priest in glory. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Every day of our lives, we need to preach that to ourselves because very few people keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. And the only way we're going to endure to the end is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me say this. If you are battling with sin that has um, ensnared you over and over and over again, everything this book has said is the remedy. The remedy is you have a high priest, you have a sacrifice, go to him, confess your sins to him, cast yourselves on him. He loves you. He wants you to have peace. He wants your conscience to be free from guilt and shame and fear and terror of judgment because he has made peace through the blood of his son's cross. He wants you to have a conscience that is washed, purified, and ready for every good work. And then thirdly, I want to say this, as we progress as a church and as believers, we ought to be zealous, not just to have sort of a defeatist Christianity um, always failing, always failing, always failing, but that we would be zealous for the good works God is working in us. Um, He equips us for every good work. He is working that in you. We should then be zealous that he would do more of that, that we would say, more, Lord, more, Lord. Work more in my soul. Work more deeply. Give me more power. We should be crying out for more holiness. Um, I think as we do, we're going to be astonished at how... um, and how much we see the kindness and the mercy and the love of the God of peace at work in our life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's go to him and pray. Father, we do ask that you would take these things and all the things we've heard over the last year and that you would um, cause us to remember them, that you would write them indelibly on our, our hearts and our minds by your Spirit. We pray that you would make us to love these truths and to rejoice in them and to 
to rejoice that we have been brought near to you through the death and resurrection of the great shepherd of the sheep. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are committed to shepherding our souls into glory. Make us to long for that. We pray that you would make us to see this week ahead in very tangible ways how you are equipping us for every good work, Father, through the perfect work of your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.